The banks may have been on Easter holiday, but here at the business we've been slaving away. This week's podcast is all about confidence, tricksters and economic forecasting. We go on spring watch to find those green shoots for recovery the politicians keep talking about. Plus, our man in New York fills us in on Ponzi schemes and the latest twist in the case against the Texan billionaire Alan Stanford as he gets ready for his big day in court. And, running on empty, we look at the beleaguered car industry in America and the UK and ask, is it still roadworthy? So, quantitatively ease yourself into your favourite armchair. I'm Adit Chakraborty and this is The Business from The Guardian. They say good things come in threes, so joining me in the studio is a trio of the finest minds from The Guardian's business desk. Deborah Hargreaves is The Guardian's business editor. Were you frugal over the Easter break, Deborah? Extremely frugal. I was in Scotland. Where, can, where else can you not be frugal? <laughs> Larry Elliott is our economics guru. Now, Larry, you know you're John Maynard Keynes, but the producer wants to know, do you know the origins of bank holidays? No, I don't. <laughs> do you no. want me to tell you? Yeah, tell me. Go on. Okay. Right, so this is, it says here, a man called Sir John Lubbock, who used to be at the Bank of England, introduced them in 1871. He was a keen supporter of cricket, and he thought that workers deserved a bit of time off to go and play Very good cricket. idea. Excellent idea. <laughs> and last but not least, Julia Finch is a paper city editor and retail expert. And it's probably time to rebrand bank holidays after all they've been up to. Don't you think, Julia? Well, certainly, judging from my experience yesterday, I would say so. I was out in uh, London's West End and the pavements were packed. OK, thank you all. Now, they seek them here, they seek them there. They seek those green shoots of recovery everywhere. Whether it's Barack Obama in America or politicians here, ministers keep talking about glimmers of hope for the economy. Julia, you did a big spread in the Observe on Sunday, going out and looking for those green shoots. Did you manage to find any? Every time anyone talks about green shoots, they always get laughed at. Norman Lamont has obviously coined the phrase back in the 90s, and he got laughed at. Um, and then earlier this year, Shruti Videra got similarly got similar treatment. Are there any green shoots? There's plenty of potential breaks in the earth, maybe, where something might appear. The places to look first, probably, are at housing and, and the high street. With housing, we're looking for house prices going up. We're looking for more people applying for mortgages, more people viewing properties. And certainly over the last few weeks, there's been some evidence of, of all of those things. Uh, all the surveys that come out, and we do have, seem to have a survey a day on the housing market. I think Nationwide earlier this month came out with the first increase in house prices for goodness knows how long, uh, probably nearly two years. OK, but Deborah, what do you see in terms of the banking crisis, which we had before the recession began? Well, we've had breaks in this banking crisis before. Obviously, it's been going on for a couple of years now. And we, every time we say things are OK, it looks like the banking system is returning to normal, something comes along to disrupt it. Um, we do seem to have stabilised. Bank share prices are going back up again. Should have bought Barclays shares at 50p. They're now £2. Very good investment over the past couple of weeks. But um, Goldman Sachs um, in the States has said it's going to have a rights issue and raise some money to pay back the money it's borrowed from the government. So we're seeing, you know, banks talking a bit more about their health now. And maybe we have seen the industry stabilised, but there are huge unrealised losses still in there. Well, Larry, no sooner do politicians talk about green shoots than the pundits come out with a weed kill and kill them all. What do you make of it? I think in 
a year's time we'll probably look back on now and say there were a few green shoots appearing i think there's a tendency to exaggerate what's going on in both directions so when the boom was in full swing back in 2006 and early 2007 we sort of assumed that the boom would go on forever and that we we ignored all the signs of trouble ahead similarly i think that now there are one or two signs that things are getting better there's a tendency to ignore those two and assume that in the darkest hour the sun will never rise again in the morning but it will the dawn will come and we'll look back i'm sure in about a year or 18 months time and say yes there were a few things the fact that the interbank market seems to be a little bit better between the banks that uh, lending seems to be a little bit easier that there's a bit more activity going on in the housing market i don't think that will translate into house prices going up anytime soon i don't think it will translate into unemployment uh, ceasing to go up but i do think we'll start to see things like consumer confidence bottoming out and we'll start to see possibly industrial production start to start to hit a floor within the next few months so i, I mean I, i'm not i'm not entirely dismissive of the idea of green shoots and it's, it's a bit sort of negative to ignore them when there when, when there are things around which we should latch on to so does that mean that instead of worrying about deflation now as we all are should we be worrying about inflation in a couple of years time yes i think now is a time to take up a massive mortgage and a huge debt because interest rates are very low fix it for as long as you can five years um at the, at the most at the moment and um within um the next five years it will be eroded by by rampant inflation look at all the money that the uh, government and the bank of england and policymakers are throwing at the economy you can't not have inflation well, it doesn't necessarily mean we're heading for inflation. There's quite a lot of deflationary pressure still in the economy, I think. Um, there's quite a lot of downward pressure. I mean, we're going to see, look at all the people who are taking pay cuts. I mean, there's an awful lot of workers out there who have, in the last two or three weeks, have said they're prepared to take 10%, 20% pay cuts in order to save jobs. And that's quite a big deflationary force. I mean, the fact that oil prices are now $100 a barrel cheaper than they were last year is going to have quite a big deflationary impact on the economy this year. So I think possibly in, in 18 months' time or two years' time inflation is going to be a problem but for the for the foreseeable future i think deflation is more of a problem than inflation okay well julia you're the retail expert what do retailers make of the vat cut we had in the pre-budget report in november does it help them i think absolutely every one of them thinks it's complete and utter waste of money and waste of time what about all those headlines over the weekend saying vat cut thank you darling it's it's insignificant it's absolutely insignificant compared to the the reductions which they've been financing themselves i.e reducing their margins the change in VAT is insignificant and it actually cost them quite a lot of money to change all those prices. The one thing that you you can say is there's been quite a lot of accusations that some of the retailers have sort of absorbed that and they're, they're, they're using that to help finance those their other reductions. And if you look back over to all the measures that were announced in that emergency fiscal stimulus of the pre-budget report in November, Deborah, do you think any of them really helped that much? Can we remember what any of them are? <laughs> I'm I'm thinking of the VAT cut, but I mean, you know, there there have been so many initiatives and so many measures to help out the economy. Some of them obviously will work, but who knows what they all are? I mean, who can remember every policy measure in uh, detail? You probably can, Larry. Bet Larry can. It's probably less sceptical of the idea that um, the VAT had no impact at all. It was a £12.5 billion injection of spending into the economy, and you'd imagine that, that would have some sort of impact. It was actually 1% of GDP. So just from wearing my economist hat, you'd imagine it would have some impact on people's spending power. So I, mean, I think it's a bit early, actually, to to say that the VAT had absolutely no impact at all. And you need to sort of look at the counterfactual, what would have happened without the VAT might Things might have been even worse. So I, mean, I think that that was obviously the main measure in the in the, in the PBR. There were other things bringing forward some infrastructure spending and so on. Um, 
but you know generally i think the problem with the if in, in terms of sort of a Keynesian boost, a problem with the with the PBR, but it wasn't big enough that actually should have been bolder and gone for a three or four percent um, boosted to output or, or, or nothing at all. It's, it's actually ended up with the worst of, worst of all possible words, whereas people say that the, the the impact wasn't particularly big, but actually the the downside of it is that you know the, the government deficit is going to be high and going to have trouble selling all the bonds. So it ended up with the worst of all possible words problem. Okay, well we'll come back to the budget at the end of the program, but we'll leave that one there for now. You'll find plenty more comment and analysis on this at guardian.co.uk/business. Right. Over to America now, where the business world has another Sir Alan, except this one won't be hiring an apprentice anytime soon. Yes, we're talking about Sir Alan Stanford, the banking magnate accused of committing spectacular $8 billion fraud. His case will probably be heard in court over the next few days, and he gave this extraordinary interview to ABC News, declaring that he was in no way involved in a Bernie Madoff-like Ponzi scheme. Here's an extract. They say that you promised more than you could possibly deliver with your CDs. Baloney. It was a Madoff-like scam. Baloney. Baloney. I will die and go to hell if it's a Ponzi scheme. It's no Ponzi scheme. If it's a Ponzi scheme, why are they finding billions and billions of dollars all over the place? The only thing I would ever say about something like that, in terms of an allegation, is if you say it to my face again, I will punch you in the mouth. You're going to punch me in the mouth? No, I'm not going to punch you in the mouth. But I'm just saying that is is absolutely, an, an absolutely ludicrous thing to say. I've worked my life. I've given everything I've had. I love my employees. I care for everybody in this company that I have. And I'm going to fight this with everything in me. You're going to fight. You effing right. I'm going to fight. Baloney indeed. Well, Andrew Clark is a Guardian's Wall Street correspondent and he's been following all of this very closely. I spoke to him earlier and began by asking him to describe the colourful character that is Sir Alan Stanford. He's a, he's a pretty flamboyant character who seems to like the limelight. He was raised in Texas, but he spent most of his business career in the Caribbean island of Antigua, where he has an estate and he employs a significant proportion of the island's population. He likes to cast himself as an ordinary man. He says he's not. He lives a relatively frugal lifestyle. But he, at one point, lived in a castle in Florida, complete with a a moat and an artificial cliff in the back garden. So what he considers frugal is in a different category from what the rest of us might think. And where did he get that knighthood from? He was granted the knighthood by the Antiguan government, which is very rare. In fact, one of very, very few knighthoods to be bestowed by that that nation. And uh, coming on to details of the case, what exactly has he been accused of? Well, he's been accused by the Securities and Exchange Commission of attracting money from US investors under false pretenses. His Stanford International Bank was offering these things called certificates of deposit, which are supposed to be fairly safe forms of investment for people who've got a little bit of money in the bank earns them a slightly higher rate of interest by investing the money in stocks, bonds and fairly conventional financial instruments. In fact, according to the US authorities, he was exaggerating the returns, the historic returns of these certificates of deposit and he was not investing them as as advertised in safe stocks and bonds. In fact, he was sending the money offshore and the precise destination of it uh, is not clear. That's something the investigators are still trying to look into. 
Now, we're talking about $8 billion of uh, alleged fraud. We're talking about a, a series of products which, as you say, were, were, were well marketed and uh, a banking empire. So then the question arises, why didn't the regulators cotton on to any of this much earlier? Well, if, as people suspect, this is in fact a Ponzi scheme, then it's very difficult to detect because in a Ponzi scheme, what you're doing is you're using new customers' money to pay out returns to older customers. So nobody really suspects that anything's wrong. Your existing customers are getting the returns that they were promised and are anticipating. Um, New customers see these returns and put money into the organisation. So unless you're really looking into the Uh, the business's accounts with a great forensic approach it's difficult to see quite what's going on Stanford made off a number of other errant investors uh, finally being um, exposed by the global financial meltdown Um, as uh, the markets do badly people begin to question why certain organizations are still producing good returns people also withdraw money because they're they're concerned about the economy they might have needs elsewhere um, so people withdraw money and that exposes those who are um, those who are up to no good. Andrew Clark there from New York. Well, a reminder that I'm joined in the studio by Deborah Hargreaves, Larry Elliott and Julia Finch. Larry, let me come to you first because Andrew raised a very good point there about regulators. If someone's intent on committing fraud, it's very, very hard for regulators to catch them, isn't it? I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it's sort of the assumption, you know, if you double the number of police on the streets, would it stop all crime in the UK? Obviously not. You, having tougher regulation is not going to stop someone who's intent on, on being a bit of a bad hat. I'm not, you know, we don't know whether Stanford is a bad hat, but, you know, it's, it's a whole war, war on Buffett argument it's only when the tide goes out you see he's been swimming naked and obviously we're going to see a lot more of these type of cases I think just because of what we've seen in the financial markets over the last couple of years but no it's just impossible to stop someone who's intent on committing a crime particularly a, a financial crime such as fraud and you have to ask yourself how, how much responsibility the investors actually must take for this because if, you, if, if a company is offering returns which look too good to be true it's probably because they are too good to be true and people just get carried away by the greed and the, and the desire to make a, a fast buck and if, if, if the person walks off with their money then to, to an extent they have themselves to blame. Well, I would say that about investors as well, actually, Larry, um, because um, the investors are, are, are always looking for good returns and don't want to see that they're too good to be true. But also, you do have to say about the regulators, and particularly in the Madoff case, there were various concerns raised over the years about what this guy was doing. And, and, and various investors inve- looked at his figures and said these are too good to be true. And they, they, they told the regulators, the regulators don't seem to have done anything, or they seem to have looked at him and concluded that everything was fine and I think the same thing happened to Stanford I think someone had also raised doubts about that so you do sort of think well okay um, it's hard to spot fraud when people are really out to um, to pull the wool over your eyes but you should listen to people when they raise concerns I mean too often it seems that these concerns are just brushed off. But Julie let me ask you about investors because particularly in the case of Bernie Madoff he had hedge funds he had rich people he had a bunch of people who were quite savvy when it came to financial markets and yet they all fell for it. Why did that happen? Goodness only knows. You, 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 there was so much money went through you know, some of the major banks and some of the major fund management companies straight into Madoff. You would assume that they would do their due diligence, that they would 
that they would be cleverer than you are and it just appears that they didn't so you know you put your trust in organizations that have a, a seal of approval from a regulator and that trust is is misplaced but then he was offering outsized returns is that what trumped everything else did they do they worry about the the regulatory seal or were they just looking at the big numbers he was offering them i can't yeah you have to come down to the the, the thought that they were just looking at the big numbers why would I don't understand. It's quite beyond me why big banks like HSBC and some of the big fund management companies and the big foreign banks would channel money into a scheme which, frankly, they couldn't replicate. And if they couldn't replicate it, you'd think they would be doing serious due diligence to find out why they can't replicate it. Why go pay fees to this guy for, for managing it when you would think with the resources at their disposal, they could do the same thing themselves? Very good. We'll leave that one there. If you want to have your say on this, post a comment on the blog at guardian.co.uk slash the business. And finally this week, we're going to go all Gary Newman, that's for you, Larry, and talk cars. The auto industry is in a sorry state on both sides of the Atlantic in America. It looks like General Motors is preparing to file for bankruptcy within weeks. While here in the UK, the government's considering a plan in next week's budget that would pay people to scrap their old cars in exchange for buying new ones. They're calling it cash for clunkers. Deborah, does it strike you as a clunk of an idea? I think it's a ridiculous idea, particularly in Britain. For a start, we don't really have an indigenous car industry, so you'd be subsidising imports. For another start, why are you paying people to get rid of perfectly good cars and buy new ones? Okay, you buy an environmentally better car, but most of the emissions are produced in making that car, not in running it. So actually scrapping in a decent car that runs, you know, or even a very old car that still runs, is much worse. It's much less green than keeping it running so I can't think it's just a stupid idea of course you know it's it's been done elsewhere we're already benefiting from it being done elsewhere 70% or so of our car manufacturing goes abroad so you could say that our car manufacturers are already benefiting from the scheme elsewhere it's, it's politics though this surely isn't it it's nothing really to do with economics it's the fact well it that should be to do with economics shouldn't it it should be an environmental thing what we're talking about here is a government within a year of an election which has handed loads of money to bankers and now looks like it wants to give some money to ordinary people that's what it's really about it's about getting some decent headlines in the papers next week for uh, and attracting c1 c2 voters in marginal seats it's got absolutely nothing to do with economics I mean, it, it, I mean I, I'm not against the idea of subsidy. I think I think this is a stupid idea, but you know, you, sh- you could use that money to subsidise something much more sensible, like the environmental technology industry, rather than car dealers. Yeah, some, yeah. Some, some, yeah. Some, some something that was green and, and futuristic, rather than rather than an industry which we've failed abysmally out of over the last 15 You're saying it's a handout to ordinary voters, but you might equally say it's a handout to foreign car manufacturers. I mean, if you look at the UK car industry, it's mainly foreign names now, isn't it? Yeah, but the, the average person is going to go out and get two grand for handing in their car and you know, it's, there is a subsidy there to the buyer as well, isn't there? So if, you, if you're, if you're going to go out and buy a £15,000 car, you're going to get £2,000 extra for your old car. I'm sure if you've got that sort of money to throw around to buy votes though, which is essentially what you're suggesting, then there's better ways of doing It'd it than subsidising cars. It'd be interesting to see what the small print of this is to see how many cars are actually being subsidised because, you know, if you think that in most years something like 2 million new cars are sold in the UK in an average year, 2 million times £2,000 a car, you're talking about some serious Wonga there, aren't you? And Deborah, we keep hearing about this uh, need to restore the British car industry to its rightful place, but when was the golden age of British car industry? Because as far as I can tell, it's been in trouble for the last three decades. <laughs> yes. Longer than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed. Well, um, well, I, I think that the, 
the whole car, world car industry actually needs re- some sort of revitalization. It needs to be re, it needs to be restructured around environmental um, measures, and and that just isn't happening. There are these little things happening around the edge, you know. But basically, we're looking to restore business as usual. What we should be really saying is, here's a good crisis, is a good opportunity to redraw the lines in the car industry put a huge push into electric cars or some kind of technology that will be um much much greener and uh, and, and that isn't happening i think we really you know it's a shame it's, it's never a, waste a good crisis as the saying yeah. goes it but, is a shame but then there's hundreds of thousands of jobs depend on the car industry this is this is the point isn't it because you're talking deborah Blue sky stuff. Mm. Let's have green mm. cars. Let's have electric cars. But let's that restructure could produce more cars, more, but, more jobs. But what do you do about the jobs instantly. in the meantime? Yeah. I mean, Julie, what do yeah. you think? Oh, I, I, it, it's frightening the number. I mean, how many is it in the states? Something like five hundred thousand jobs. You're talking about an entire city. Mm. There's, a, there's, a, there's a global problem, which is over, over capacity and oversupply in the, in the global car industry. That's why loads of car companies have been closing plants for the last three or four months because there's just a massive glut of cars out there. I mean, in the case of the UK, in answer to your question of what was, when was the golden age of the UK car industry, it was probably before the Second World War. Um, Britain has actually failed really quite miserably in that, in that sort of new, that wave of technologies which followed the Second World War, you know, consumer electronics, cars, all those sort of things which, which fed the consumer boom. And that's why this is in some ways quite a retrogressive step because it's almost like trying to sort of turn the clock back and get get into a into a game where Britain lost decades ago. And what we really should be doing is trying to surf the new wave of technology rather than catch up with with the Germans and the Japanese and the and the Americans in something that where we we lost out um, decades ago. And you were talking about the imperative to hand out money to consumers a year from the from possible general election. I mean, what do you think the likelihood is of Alistair Darling adopting this plan in next week's budget? I think they've gone so far with it. They're bound to do something. I mean, it's the talk has been so loud that I'd be very surprised now if there's nothing. There's no cash for clunkers. Um, it, just, it just strikes me that we'd have to look and see how many cars... Uh, are actually going to be affected by this. I mean, if it may well, the, the time, the timing of it is going to be interesting. How old the car has to be in order for you to get the subsidy? Um, because I've and le- what sort of car I, I've, it applies to? I've, which le- I've learned over the years that quite a lot of what new labour does, once you actually dig beneath the surface, the actual amount of the boost tends to be quite small, and the, it's quite quite tightly drawn who gets the money. So I would be surprised if this if this is actually you know new golden dawn for the British currency, or in fact the foreign currency selling cars into the UK. Well, I've got an old micro at home and I'm looking forward to turning into something quite swanky. Okay, time to park that subject. If you want to give us your feedback on the state of the car industry or any of our other topics, post your comment on our blog at guardian.co.uk slash the business. We'll be back on Thursday next week with a special joint podcast with our friends from Politics Weekly, giving you the final word on the budget. All that remains now then is to thank the panel. Deborah Hargreaves, Larry Elliott, Julia Finch, our producers Ben Green, I'm Adit Shakraborty, and that was The Business.